0: Good morning. There it is. All right. Good to see you. Let's thank the band, these shanks that can't play. It's good. It's good, <laughs> it's good to have Kyle back up here too. That's great. Uh, just kidding. Um, hi, my name is Derek, and I'm the pastor here. If you have a Bible, Luke chapter 15 is where we're going to be for the next four Sundays. We're starting a series today of teachings called the prodigal, or just prodigal. You may have seen that on the chalkboard coming in. It's been on the screen. It's on your bulletin. To get that into your head. That's a, that's a key word. Someone asked me uh, after first hour um, about that word in, in relation to the story, and I'll, I'll just say this in the beginning so that maybe it makes sense along the way, and you uh, might answer a question you have. Jesus never uses the word prodigal. It's not even a biblical word. It's just a word that we've given it through the centuries uh, Jesus never really started a story saying, um, this is a story called, and then He would give a title and then give the story. He would just tell these parables, and it's up to the listener to uh, hear themselves in the story, to put themselves in the story, to really catch what is being said. And so, this story is a pretty amazing story, and you may be very, very connected to the story, which is a risk. I'm co-writing this uh, series with a pastor friend of mine in another city in another state, and he's terrified to do this series. In fact, he's rewritten today's message several times because he's so afraid that it's quite familiar. And um, and I guess that I guess that's a, a legitimate fear. But I love the story. I, mean, I just love this story because it's my story, you know, and it's your story. It's all we're all in the story. We're all prodigals. We all run from God from time to time. And I think that's I think part of that story is seen true in the fact that we're all here right? I mean, we're just all in this room knowing that we're not perfect, knowing that uh, we, we belong to God, knowing that we need to be connected to Him, and so we, we come each and every week and sit in these seats, I think essentially because we understand this story uh, perhaps better than we think. Now, there's a reason that Jesus told this story. If you have your Bible… Uh, is everybody there, by the way, Luke 15? Got a cough out of that. Anybody there? That's good, man. That's the worst sound ever. Like… <clears throat> Um, <laughs> Luke 15. There is a reason that Jesus told this story. If you were not here last Sunday, we talked about that reason. We talked about why Jesus told the story. If you again, if you weren't here, it went down like this. Look in verse one and two of the chapter. Now, the tax collectors and "quote unquote" sinners, which is just a word that was a general word to describe people's lives or people whose lives had gone off the rails morally. So the word sinner, although we have different pictures of what that means, uh, the word sinner in this day when Jesus told this story was just describing people whose lives were off mark, right? The word itself has a layered meaning. In fact, uh, one of the meanings of the word sin, it's an archery term. It just means that the arrow never makes the target. It falls short. And uh, Paul would say this in, the, in later writings in the New Testament, that we have all sinned and fallen short of what God has in mind for us. And so ultimately, it's people's lives who are short-sighted uh, in terms of what God wants them to be about. But what's interesting is it says these people, tax collectors and sinners, were all gathered around to hear Him, and Him is Jesus. And so Jesus has this magnetism with lost people. He has this magnetism with people who are sinners, people whose lives are off the rails, right? And what's interesting is that they love being around Him. And He has this reputation in the Scriptures of being a friend of these people. The Bible calls Him a friend of sinners, or they called Him a friend of sinners. Not an acquaintance, not not people He bumped into, but these are friends of His. These people that lived lives that may have been a little sketchy. Jesus was friends with these people. They loved to hear Him teach, which… It's very interesting because it's not that way anymore, right? It just doesn't play out like that so much anymore. But, verse 2, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, these are the religious elites of the day. They're very spiritual people. They're very moral people. They live a great life, and they know the Scriptures better than anyone. These people, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now, if you were here last week, I said this several times these people had a difficult time, a hard time figuring out uh, who Jesus was simply because of who he was with all the time. This association that Jesus had with sinners and tax collectors and all these people whose lives were gone crazy, they had a hard time figuring out who Jesus really was because of who he was with, right? And uh, to, to use the phrase, he welcomed sinners, this is a very packed phrase with meaning, I mean to welcome in those days to welcome to show hospitality to someone whose life whose life was completely off mark was to uh, approve or to take in their views or to like to associate with these people was to like approve of what they were living for to prove to approve of their lifestyle. So this confused the religious leaders of the day. So you've got two audiences here. You've got sinners and tax collectors. They love hearing Jesus teach. And you've got Pharisees and teachers of the law. They also like to hear Jesus teach, but he confused them because of who his associations were with. So when Jesus hears this, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. He tells three stories, one about a lost sheep, one about a lost coin, and then the story we're going to look at for the next few weeks, the story of the lost son, or the prodigal son, as you may know it. Let's look at verse 11. If you're new with us, I usually just walk through this and we'll uh, stop along the way and do some teaching. So just follow along as best as you can. Jesus continued, it says in verse 11, there was a, a man who had two sons. And this, if this were a play, if this were a movie, this is in brackets. This is the setting. This is, the, this is what the stage looks like. This is something we shouldn't skip over. This is about a family. Right? So Jesus sets the stage saying, there was a family. And when you have a family, you have all kinds of history. You have uh, relationships, you have love, you have anger, you have tension, you have, we've grown up together, we've made memories together, this was my room, this was my spot in the home, like this is my dad, this is my brother, these are our animals, this is our farm, there's history there. This is the story of a family, right? This is not the story of just a son. This is the story of a community. And then it says in verse 12, Jesus continues the story, the, the, the younger one said to his father, father, Give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. So it's not just a story about a family. It's a story about a family that is about to, in the next few verses, tear apart. It's a story about a family that's about to undergo division. And it's not a good kind of division this is a premature division. This is not the normal, my kid is going to college, we send him off, we let him go, uh, and hopefully he never comes back to live here kind of division, right? Uh, (laughs) That's not the kind of story that Jesus is telling. This is premature. This is the son coming to the father and saying, I want out, so give me my stake in the family wealth so that I can get out. Now, what's interesting is that like I said, it's not a peaceful parting of the ways. His son's not getting married. He hasn't found a job in another city. He wants out. Now look at the request that he makes. Give me my share of the estate. Now a little bit of history for you, uh, just so you know what the listeners in the days of Jesus are hearing, what they're understanding, how this story is unfolding in front of them. And it's unfolding very quickly for them because there's so many cultural mathematical issues here. If a dad has two sons and he has great wealth and he wants to divide his wealth between his sons, the older son would get two-thirds of the wealth. The younger son would get one-third. So the younger son has come to the dad and has essentially asked for his third of what the father has. It's not uncommon, it was not uncommon, historians tell us, for dads to dole out their wealth to their children while they were still living. But to ask your father for your share of the estate while he was still alive. Of course, he has to be alive to ask him that question. If you ask your father for your share of the estate while he's still alive, it's essentially saying to your father, you are as good as dead to me, period. I don't have any need for you anymore. In fact, I can do a better job with your things than you are. I don't want to be here. I want out. So to ask your father for your share of the estate while he was still alive was an indictment on your father. One historian says it was essentially like saying to your father, you're not a good dad. You're unfit to lead the family. I can do better with the stuff that you have on my own away from here than you can do with all of us here. So give me what's mine and I'm going to go, right? Let me just bring this home because it just sounds a little bit rude even today to even imagine that. Like my my wife is one of very few grandchildren in her family and uh, her grandparents, of course, are getting older. And she, because she's uh, just one of few in the family, she's in their will, of course. And they own all this land, they have a farm, uh, and she gets some of that when they pass away. We don't know what we're going to do with it, mini mall, water park, we don't know. Uh, <laughs> but something is coming to her, and we love, we love her grandparents. My son just loves his great-grandparents. I mean, when we go to Louisville, we visit them uh, all the time. I can't even imagine convincing my wife to make a phone call today and for her to say, look, you're already in a nursing home. Uh, What are we talking? Three, four more Christmases, Max? Why don't you... It's tense, isn't it? It's tense. But this is what the son is doing. Why don't you just give me... Why don't we make it easy now? And you just give me what's coming to me and then we'll just call it even. Can you imagine what that was like. For Jesus to say, this is what the Son, this is the request the Son made. A little Greek for you. I've got two Greek words for you today. Look at what He says. Give me my share of the estate. The word for estate is usia. Say that with me. One, two, three. Usia. It's very simple. It means things, possessions, right? Give me the stuff that belongs to me. It's materials, right? And so essentially what Jesus frames for us in the beginning of the story is that the Son wants the things of the Father, but not the Father, at least not anymore, right? Give me the stuff that the Father has, but I'm tired of the Father. Now again, it's a parable. Jesus doesn't give a motive for the Son. It's up to us. It's up to the listener. It falls on the ears of the listener, and we sort of go away and unpack the story within our own context, So he doesn't give details at all. He just says, this is what the son asks for. And then the father gives it to him, right? But I did in my own sort of journey through preparing for this, three things that would cause me to want to just run away from God. One would be that I'm impatient with God. And that's a little bit in the story here. I mean, when you're saying to your father in those days, give me my share of the estate, you're basically saying, I'm tired of waiting for you to die. So give me what is mine anyway. And so there's this sense in which there's an impatience with the Son. And certainly all of us grow impatient with God. Sometimes, or maybe mostly, because we feel like God owes us certain things, right? A good life, a good marriage, healthy relationships, a great job, or just a job for that matter. We have all these different things that we feel like God might owe us because, and this is where the, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law hopefully are listening in, partly because maybe we think we're living the right kind of life, and God owes us because we're, we're staying in the right lane the whole time. And so maybe sometimes we just grow impatient with God, and we go to God and say, look, if you're not going to deliver, then I'll just go elsewhere. Another reason that we might just want to run away from God, or at least for me, is simply because maybe I'm at odds with God. Certainly in a family situation, when a kid runs away Uh, not in all situations, of course, but certainly the base rhythm of that division is going to be somebody's at odds with somebody. Somebody is at odds. Either the father is at odds with the son, or the son is at odds with the father. And sometimes we're just at odds with God. I mean, we, we read his word and we say, I know that's what the word says, God, but this is different for me right? My situation is different, or I know that's what you're saying. I know that's what the Word says about all these different issues in life, but I'm different, right? My situation, or our situation, or whatever. Sometimes we say to God, I don't think you understand this situation. I know it's that way for everybody else, and I know that that's probably what's true, but this is different. And sometimes we get get at odds with God, or we grow to where we're at odds with God. Sometimes we just don't trust Him, There's a lack of trust. Like our feet aren't fully on the ground. We're loose in the relationship. And so we feel like, I don't know if I can trust him. I don't know if I can trust him with my things. And so I can't trust him with my money or my relationships or my stuff or my job or just my life in general. So I just, I just pick those things up and I go, I go elsewhere, right? Again, the details are not in the story. They're up to you and to me. But if I read it right, it forces, to ask, it forces me and you to ask the question, what makes me tell God that I don't need him, at least for the moment? Because sometimes we're just prodigals in little areas. It's not a complete running away, but it's just a turning of the head to where we don't see or hear God in a certain situation, right? But look what the Father does, and this is what would have astounded the listeners. By the way, the normal response for a father in those days, if a son were to offend his dad and ask for his share of the wealth while he's still alive, the normal response historians tell us was that the father would drive the son out of the family. But some of you who are dads are like, keep talking. You drive the son out of the family. Typically, you would walk them to the edge of your property, beating them physically the whole way. I mean, can we get excited about that, right? But in Jesus' story, in His version, it doesn't work that way. Look at what it does. He divided His property between them. And all the listeners are thinking, what? Are you serious? He did it. He let the Son go, right? And He gave Him what He asked for. And the listeners would have certainly thought, that is completely irresponsible. So that's scene one family tears apart. Look at scene two, verse 13 through 16. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had. And this is the part I picture him with the stick over his shoulder and the little bag of whatever's in that bag walking down the trail with his cut-off jean, capri pants, Huck Finn kind of look, you know. I had to keep going because I didn't think you were catching the the visual. (laughs) Do you people read? I mean, like, what's the story? Uh, All right. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, and he set off for a distant country. And there he squandered his wealth in wild living, parentheses, like spring break, just wild living. Like After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went out, and he hired himself to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. And the Jewish listeners in the days of Jesus right there would have thought, man, that's as low as it gets. And he longed to fill his stomach with the pods, this is the food that he's feeding the pigs, that the pigs were eating. But check out the the direness of the situation. But no one gave him anything. He wasn't even allowed to eat the food. He couldn't even steal from the pigs, right? Now, this is the part we read and think, I know people like that, or I'm like that, or whatever, but I think what's beneath this is more important. Think about what the father is feeling while his son is off. I mean, I'm a dad myself, I have a seven year old, and the thought of him turning up missing or running away worse is terrifying. I mean, even as a kid for me, like just, I mean, I'd heard of people running away and packing their things up and just jamming, but I could never, I never could even imagine doing that. The worst we did was sneak out of our house at night and decorate people's yards with toilet paper and um, fun stuff like that. You know, I used to let my neighbor's dogs out. He had like a fence and we'd open the fence and let the schnauzers out. And we, we thought that was funny, but um, maybe it wasn't. Um, but that's like the worst. I mean, like I never even thought of like packing up my things and leaving. And the thought of my own son coming to that is terrifying. There's only one Uh, point in his seven years that he almost turned up missing, or depending on how you interpret the story I'm about to tell you, uh, when his father almost went to jail. So depending on how you interpret what I'm about to tell you, um, he was about three weeks old, and we had not—this is our first son. We had been married seven years-ish, and so that sort of having a son after being married that long was a rough sort of landing, and we were still getting used to that, but I was going to get stamps, had him in the back seat. He was in the car seat, sleeping or whatever. And I pulled into the parking lot, uh, went in and got stamps, bought the stamps, hung out for a few minutes, picked up a few things. I came back out to the car, and as I'm coming around the car with my keys in the hand, I notice in the back seat is my son, who's been sitting there while I've been inside getting stamps. So I did what every father does. You guys are, like, really quiet. Quit being judgmental. Uh, LAUGHTER He's fine. He's downstairs singing songs about Jesus. He doesn't even know. But I did what every dad did in, that, in those moments. I, I looked around the parking lot for cops, you know, like, and uh, I had a guy run up to me after first service uh, this morning and went, Happened to me. And he said, Here's the rule. <laughs> he said something about, uh, uh, well, I don't, it was funny, but it was really funny. Um, <laughs> he said he got there before the parking meter attendant got to his car. And 15 minutes was too long. I don't know. It was really funny. But that was terrifying because I got in the car and I was like imagining him not. I mean, he's just a few weeks old, but just imagining him just being gone, you know. And so I told Mickey immediately uh, when I got home, you know, like, funny story, honey. Uh, <laughs> it's really funny. Might want to sit down. All right. But It's terrifying. And part of what Jesus is doing at this point in the story is trying to help us feel what the heartbeat of the Father may have been. Because look at the things he lists. I mean, these, the things that Jesus lists in this whole section right here are all the things that any decent and maybe even non-decent parent would fear if their son or daughter had run from home. Look where it starts. It starts with distance. He set off for a distant country. And then it goes to carelessness. Like he squandered everything in wild living, right? The word for wild there is a sotos. It means loose. Like his feet weren't on the ground. He's lost everything, right? And then he mentions pain and suffering like from external circumstances. There's a famine. Like it's horrible. It's your son or daughter is in another state and you hear about bad weather, right? It's a difficult thing. He he hires himself out at the lowest level to make ends meet. He would fear that, that his son would have to suffer to survive. And then you have this, he longed to fill his stomach, like there's an emptiness and a hopelessness that the son is going through. It's not just a story for us to listen to and go, I know people like that. I know people in my family that are like that. Oh, that's old Uncle Joe. He's always been a prodigal but it helps us to feel maybe what the Father is feeling. Because remember, the Father let him go. So what's the Father feeling while he's gone? And so Jesus gives us a great picture of what is happening, and this is exactly how God feels when we run away. And I think everybody should know that in the room today, that when we decide I'm packing my stuff and jamming and getting out of the relationship with God, this is how God feels. This is what God sees. He sees us. There's distance, like we're careless in some situations. There's pain and suffering. We're running out of resources. We're having to suffer just to survive spiritually. And this is how he feels as a dad. Look at verses 17 through 20. This is scene three. When he came to his senses, he said, and he begins to ask these questions to himself, right? How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you, right? This is the the speech when you miss curfew. He's rehearsing it. I am no longer worthy to be called your son, which works every time. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. And this is not a field worker, a hired man in those days was somebody who lived in another village that came in and was a day laborer. Just make me one of those, right? So he got up, and he went to his father. But here's what's happening. There's a great phrase that Jesus uses here when he came to his senses. And this is an old Jewish idiom. It has a Greek thing that I'm not even going to try to pronounce, but it was a very popular phrase. And it was used in connection with repentance, of course. But what it means on the front end is that he woke up. That he saw things clearly for the, for the first time in a long time. It means to see things clearly crystal clear, right? Because it always works that way with sin. Like, we never really see ourselves clearly. Everyone else around us can be going, you shouldn't be doing that. You shouldn't be with her. You shouldn't be experiencing all this stuff. You shouldn't be doing all these things. And we go, I know, I know, I know. But we don't see it like everybody else sees it. So this moment, this come to our senses moment, is when we go, oh, I see things clearly. It's the undertow of sin, Right, We're out there in the ocean and we're playing around and we don't even realize it. And then we look up and we say, where's the hotel? I don't even know where I am. And we panic because for the first time in a while, we see things as they are. We see things as they truly are. And we begin to see ourselves as quite lost. And we ask that question. This is a great question. And this happens when you have this uh, come to my senses moment. It's the question of how did I get here? How did I end up here? And it happens in every part of life, right? It happens in all sorts of, all sorts of our uh, life experiences, you know? How did we end up here? Or how did I end up in this spot in my life? And all the things that Jesus listed earlier, right? Carelessness, distance, pain and suffering, running out of money, having to suffer to make ends meet, emptiness, hopelessness, they're all now reversed, Right? Because the son begins to retrace his steps and saying, maybe what I don't need is distance between me and my father. And so I need to go back to him, right? Maybe what I don't need is carelessness in my life. So, uh, dad, just hire me out as one of your like field workers and I'll just work my way back in, right? And he just begins to go through the list and everything is reversed as the son begins to make the journey home or at least the decision to make the journey home. And so, coming to your senses is a recreation. It's a rebuild. It's a reboot of your life. But I think what happens mostly when we come to our senses, at least in the story here for this son, is that he realizes, no matter how you read what follows that phrase, what he realizes is that he's homesick, right? He just wants to be home with his dad and maybe even his brother and maybe even the rest of his family. He just, he's homesick. And what Jesus is doing in telling this story is saying that every single one of us, we're homesick, right? Jesus frames up a big reality about the entire human story, and that's that we're all exiles. And that we've all been on the run since the days of Adam and Eve, settling and resettling in new homes, but never really feeling at home, Right? A few quotes on the screen for you. Uh, In his book, The Prodigal God, Tim Keller writes, The message of the Bible is that the human race is a band of exiles trying to come home. And the parable of the prodigal son is about every one of us. It's about all of us. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Problem of Pain, says, Our Father, speaking of God, refreshes us on the journey with some pleasant ends, but will not encourage us to mistake them for home. There's this feeling that sometimes we go and we do things, we fill our stomachs, so to speak, with just these little temporary things thinking that they're home, but they're not home. They're never home. It's never enough. I was trying to explain this to my son the other night. He wants another game for his Wii, and we're just like, no more, you know? One's enough. (laughs) But uh, we had sticks and rocks when I was your age. (laughs) But he said, why? And I He's seven, and I'm on the park bench with my son, and I'm saying, because you're going to want another game, and then you're going to want another one, and it's never going to end. That process never ends, right? And so we can't mistake all the little things that we experience in life as home. Uh, Before we put the quote on the screen from uh, Augustine, uh, Augustine wrote a whole sort of life journal called Confessions. And Confessions is really about all sorts of things in his life, his family, his faith, and all these different things. But there are two main things that keep coming off the pages, and it's hundreds of pages of, of journal entries. And the thing that, the two things that Augustine struggled with uh, primarily was, uh, were food and sex. These two things were vices for him. And I'm glad things have changed in, in human culture. Those things aren't important anymore. But food and sex drove Augustine, and he fought those things all the time. And really, in the very first uh, paragraph of Confessions, which was cool because I own the book, and I'm looking for this quote. I'm like, I know it's in here, and it's just hundreds and hundreds of pages. And I'm like, man, I hope I find it. It's like a needle in a haystack. I'm I'm Googling it. Nobody knows. And I open page one. There it is. Thank you, God. Uh, But it goes like this. He begins the whole journey saying this, for you, God, have created us for yourself, and our heart cannot be quieted until it may find rest in you. And the whole journey of confessions and the whole journey of life for us is to realize that we've been created to be home. And until we understand that, we're always going to find these different things to fill up our stomachs, but they're never going to be totally at home for us. Turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. It's right in the middle of the Bible, and if you're not familiar with the book of Ecclesiastes, it's essentially uh, the dance mix of the prodigal son story. It's an extended version of the prodigal son story. The writer, just he's he's consciously testing all these different things, women, uh, wealth, power, work, all possessions, all these different things. He's testing them and journaling about each one of those. And then in chapter 4, verse 4 and following, he says these words, and these are powerful words. He says, And I saw that all labor and all achievement spring from man's envy of his neighbor, which is another way of saying it must be better out there than in here. So I'll just go that direction. I'll leave home and go there. This too, he says, is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. And then he does some poetry for us. The fool folds his hands and ruins himself. Better is one handful of tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Verse 7, again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. And there was a man all alone. Picture the sun, by the way, who is away from home. There was a man all alone, he had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, and yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling? I mean, this is the son asking the question My my father's hired men are eating better than me. Who am I working for? he asked. And why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? Why did I come out here and waste everything that I have? This too, he says, is meaningless, a miserable business. Verse 9 begins with two are better than one, right? It's the turn in the story. It's I'm better off with than without, right? It's pretty amazing. Go back to verse 12, and we'll close it down with this. The son asks his father for the estate, the usia, the stuff that's coming to him in the will you've got to catch this. He asks for the stuff that the father has, the possessions, the things. Watch what Jesus says next. So he divided his property between them. Now, the listeners caught this. Let me explain it to you. The son asked for the estate, Usea. Jesus said, so the dad divided his Bios, between them. He changes the language. The word bios means life. The kid asks for the things. The father divides his life between them. You can read it this way. The father tore apart his life so that the son could live like hell. The father ripped his life apart For the Son. Jesus changes the language and weighs the story down with his words, like, the Son asked for his things, but the Father gave his life instead. The Son asked to be freed from whatever was oppressive to him, and the Father gave his life. He tore his life. That's an amazing turn of events. The son is short-sighted. His vision is very small. God, give me the things. Dad, give me the things. Give me the stuff. Give me the possessions. And the father says, fine, it'll cost my life. And so he tears his life for the son. Turn to Isaiah 53. And we'll end with three passages here. This is speaking about Jesus. This is a prophetic passage about the coming Christ. And Isaiah says, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us has turned his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity or the sin of us all. We've all done this. We've all gone to God and said, I'm going my own way. And the way God treats that is that he takes all of that stuff and he puts it on his son. And it costs his son his life. He puts all the iniquity on his son. Go back to Psalm 103. We're going to start in verse 8, actually. Uh, David says it this way, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. Now, the listeners of the story that Jesus is telling, they're not remembering this, or at least... They're remembering it now. Verse 9, He will not always accuse, nor will He harbor His anger forever. And this is the one we hang our life on right here, verse 10. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. I mean, is that an amen? Right? He doesn't do that. He doesn't treat us as we deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. Jesus pays that. Jesus pays that. He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. Romans 5, We'll close with this one. This one is cool, man, because Paul just frames it so well. Verse 8. He says, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Like, we didn't get things straight, we didn't clean our lives up, we didn't come to him all squeaky clean, but while we were in the midst of sin, while we were in the midst of sort of running away from him, he died for us. Father, give me my share of the estate. Okay, I'll do that, but it's heavier than you think because you want to go out and do these things, and you want to test the waters, and you want to find different little homes along the way, but it's heavier than you think, and it will cost more than you think, which we'll actually talk about last or next week But Christ died for us while we were still sinners. Not waiting for us to improve. Not waiting for us to get better. Not waiting for us to get it all together. But while we were in that state. So I love this story. I don't care how familiar it is. That's a pretty powerful turn of events. Right? He doesn't just let the son go. But he makes this statement that I'll give my life so that you can go do that. And so that hopefully you'll come home. And that's like grace defined, you know? I'll let you do it, and I'll pay the price. And that's a pretty amazing thing. And I want to say this in closing, just this one line that's highlighted in my, in, in my notes. For those of you who um, you, you're listening today and you're saying to yourself, I'm the younger son, right? I'm away from home. I'm doing all the things that you've described. What you need to hear, and we hit on this very heavy next week, is that it is very, very safe to come home, right? It's a very safe, God is a very safe God to come home to. And we hope in some way as a church that this room when we gather is a safe place for you, is a safe uh, uh, rescue for wherever you've been, uh, for wherever you will go when you leave here, right? But it's safe, and God is a safe God. His love is dangerous, but he's safe. And to end our service, uh, as we do each and every week, we're going to have communion. And there, um, uh, what, a, what, a, what a great way to walk into that, just knowing that God sent his son to die for you and for me, for the whole world, while we were still sort of doing whatever we wanted to do. Uh, he still sacrificed his own life, and this bread and juice represent that. And so when I'm finished praying, you can make your way to one of the four tables um, also if you've come to give the baskets are on the table uh, for that as well. Let's pray together God,